Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us here at midweek and letting us be part of your day. We hope it's a good day for you and that you are safe and well. Coming up on our program today, we're going to talk with the, a member of the United Soybean Board, a farmer from Iowa, about uh, some action taken by the United uh, Soybean Board, the Soybean Checkoff, working on a project called Take Action. It's uh, offering free tools for farmers to use to mitigate crop damage and fight off resistance. We'll talk about it coming up on our program today. Also, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with INTL FC Stone, joins us. We'll talk markets, latest on the trade issues with China and more. Of course, we'll look at crop conditions as well as they impact the markets. And we'll talk with the CEO of the National Potato Council. The potato industry is one of those making a case to USDA to try to get into the CFAP program. We'll get the very latest on that from Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. But we're going to start things off with an update on an issue concerning Prop 12 out in California. That ongoing legal case challenges to it. One of those in that case, the National Pork Producers Council. And joining us now is Michael Formica, Assistant Vice President for Domestic Affairs and Council for the National Pork Producers Council. Michael, thank you for being with us. Uh, Bring us up to date. I know you're in an appeals process now. What's the latest? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mike. Um, Well, you're right. We are in an appeals process. We had filed a lawsuit against California, I believe, early last year. um, Filed it challenging Prop 12, which is their animal welfare uh, ballot initiative that would outlaw essentially 99.5% of the pork in the country from the California market. Uh, we, we challenge this law because it's a violation of the Constitution and because we believe that there ought to be a free market between the states to ship product. Um, we did not expect to win at the trial court, and so when our case was dismissed, we, we turned around and filed a, an appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, that appeal was filed late last week. And um, we're now uh, we're now upwards and onwards to the Court of Appeals, where uh, we expect and hope to be victorious. So basically, what you're saying is, and and what your uh, the case is about is that Prop 12 out in California is basically trying to set would set uh, the production standards for the rest of the country by not allowing producers from other states to sell into that market. Is that right? Exactly. They they have uh, a, you know drafted not by farmers but by the Humane Society and some Silicon Valley activists. Uh, they've got very prescriptive standards on how farmers can raise animals, specifically how a farmer can raise a sow and that and the housing that needs to be provided for the sow. They require 24 square feet of space for each animal. They require group housing, but not group housing the way most producers do it. Uh, they would require um, group housing as soon as the piglets are weaned. You would have to move the sows back into a group setting. Uh, currently, even the, the open tent group housing farms would, would all use what we would call a breeding stall to help, uh, help the sows recover, help them calm down to, to keep them from fighting each other, um, help them to put on some weight and, and 
recover from pregnancy. Um, HSUS wants them to all be moved back into these pens, and um, you know it, it's just simply not the way hogs are raised in this country. And there is uh, there is not any commercial production that would uh, would comply with these prescriptive uh, California standards. So I know many are watching this. Yeah, many are watching this case as a precedent because uh, basically you're talking about can one state dictate production practices to producers in other states? So it could go well beyond pork. It could it could go well beyond pork. They have tried this with you know with eggs and and it, with the egg industry have seen some uh, you know some some success there. They've tried it with veal. They're now they're now targeting pork. Uh, they certainly have, and and we see them. Uh, I assume a lot of this is being funded by the fake meat companies. Uh, you know, we see them targeting beef, see them targeting dairies, see them targeting poultry as well. And so this is, uh, you know, do we want to let them get their nose under the tent? Um, you know, we look, we looked at the situation in California. It's a massive market and said enough is enough. We've got to go in and we've got to, you know, put a stop to this. And we're going to, uh, we're not going to rely on the California voters. We're going to rely on, on the court system because what they're doing is clearly in violation of the Commerce Clause. Now, you said when you took it to court, when you challenged it in court, you did not expect to win that first decision, which you did not, and that's why you're now appealing. Uh, why are you more hopeful in the appeals process? Well, we, you know, um, so the district court is in California. It's going to be controlled by other law that you know came up through the California courts that has come up through the, the Ninth Circuit um, in the past. We believe that the violation of the Commerce Clause is so clear, and the facts, especially when you look at what the accorded benefit to California is, which is nil, uh, versus the, the egregious burden that's being imposed on all of these other states around the country, um, that the balance there is completely off. It's billions and billions and billions of dollars of harm versus no benefit to California. And, and in fact, it harms California because it's going to remove food from the table from, you know, from the citizens of California. Um, when you look at that and you look at how the Commerce Clause has developed over the years, it's a pretty, it, it, it strikes me as a pretty clear um, case. Um, we didn't think we were going to win because we were at the district court level because you're going to the initial trial court in California. There's a single judge. When we go up to the Court of Appeals, we have a panel of judges. Um, the Ninth Circuit historically has been very difficult for, for industry, but you know, one of the things the president has done is he has reshaped the courts, and now there is a majority Republican lean to the Ninth Circuit. We expect to get a much more favorable review by them as we're going forward, and then after that, our case is ultimately designed um, for you know, to appeal to the uh, appeal in the sense that the Supreme Court would want to take it up to end up at the Supreme Court, where we are very consistent with the the long term trends of the Supreme Court and expect to uh, expect to get a victory there. We're hopeful we get a victory there. So you're in it for the long haul to see it all the way through. All right, we'll be watching uh, how this plays out in the uh, in the legal system. Michael, thank you for the update. Thank you. Have a good day. All Eat right. More pork. My-
Okay, Michael Formica, he's the Assistant Vice President, Domestic Affairs and Counsel for the National Pork Producers Council as they uh, now appeal that court ruling on their uh, motion to uh, go against this Prop 12 in California. Basically, that uh, you know, Prop 12 says animals have to be raised a certain way. Now they're saying... If you're going to sell animals from out of state into California, you would have to follow those same guidelines and procedures. MPPC is challenging that in court, taking it now through the appeals process. All right, stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now. Back to Mike Adams. Well, this is PEST Week. PEST standing for Pest Elimination Strategies and Tactics. The Soy Checkoff and its partners in the Take Action Program have released some tools to use to mitigate crop damage and to fight off resistance. Here to tell us about it is Tom Oswald, a member of the United Soybean Board from Iowa and is the United Soybean Board Supply Action Team Chair. Tom, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about these free tools that you're offering. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. The tools, uh, there are basically a couple different places to find them. One is the online site, and then there's this app. In fact, I was using the app here at home a few minutes ago. Um, but the key thing is the Take Action program is this collaborative effort with universities and companies and the idea is to help farmers stay ahead of the issue of pest resistance or if they have pests that are resistant, be that diseases, insects, or weeds, to help them get on top of that by uh, developing strategies and tactics to do so. Yeah, these are all profit robbers, and we know resistance has become a, a huge issue. Uh, give us an example of some of these tools of how uh, what's there that can help farmers dealing with this. Well, for example, uh, when I was using the app, I was thinking about the number of modes of actions that I was using in my soybeans and corn to see if I'm really breaking up my strategy enough. It's pretty easy to go into the app and enter in an herbicide that you may be using, for example, and it'll tell you, you know, its mode of action, and then you think about the other ones you have so that the tool works very well. Oftentimes, you go into one of your uh, input suppliers. You may see a chart on the wall that shows the various products and their modes of action. It's very important that the mode of action is important, but also the scouting element. You've got a weed that you're looking at, and you go, what, what, what is that weed? You take your app, and you can go do it or find it online. Um, really helpful. And, again, it's the whole, whole thing of this pest week is to help farmers think along the lines of, oh, yeah, I need to get back out and scout. I made that application early on. Is anything escaping? Is it time now to treat? If there is an escape, how might I approach it differently? I know uh, that was what was on my mind because uh, though we don't have palmer amaranth, for example, here, uh, water hemp is just a real pain to try to stay on top of, especially in wet areas that uh, in many years can be very difficult to get in and control. So each day you kind of feature a different step that can be taken? Well, there's a lot of different things going on. That's correct, yeah, during test week. there's uh, It's all about getting the mindset to do that. Even here in mid-season, there are steps to be taken, right? And a lot of it starts with uh, scouting those fields. 
Oh, man, that's for certain. I was out uh, checking some spots, and I found, for example, on my farm, a, a spot where my burn down uh, wasn't there. It was, a, it was a problem with the guy operating the sprayer, which happens to be me. He probably didn't have a section turned on. And it really illustrated to me that my burn down did me a lot more good than I thought when I see weeds that uh, were obviously in a pattern that suggests it was a sprayer error. You know, scouting is so critically important. That's correct. We're talking with Tom and Oswald. You do it or you're, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I was just thinking whether it's you or your advisors, too. I mean, realizing a lot of farmers may not be able to scout themselves. Right. But uh, it's, again, about that conversation, you know, making sure you're getting on top of your strategy. Yeah, get people out there, someone checking it and uh, working on the strategy. We're talking with Tom Oswald from Iowa, member of the United Soybean Board, the USB Supply Action Team Chair. We're talking about uh, pest week and some of the tools being made available. Uh, so in your program, uh, you have resources kind of broken down by specific disease, insect, or weeds that farmers can be may be facing on their farms, right? Oh, exactly. Absolutely. That's like, again, on the application down at the bottom uh, on the phone, you, you select weed, insect, disease. You know, again, that's where it kind of leads you to resources. Similar fashion on the website, uh, IWillTakeAction.com. And, uh, you know, the key thing is, too, that, you know, this is farmers funding resources for farmers. We're doing this through the checkoff. And uh, it's very important that we have these unbiased, works that we fund through universities a lot of great uh, university resources have gone into this information that's on the website and that helps you know that that unbiased farmers want to know that you know is this answer unbiased and i think that's what's really valuable in the fact that uh, we do have insights from the researchers is, is the backbone of this information and you're wanting farmers to adopt these management practices that would lessen uh, the impact of resistant pests, and also preserve uh, not only current technologies but future technologies, right? Exactly. I think that's what's really important is, you know, Mother Nature keeps throwing curveballs at us and always will, and some of the products we have still work, and we have some maybe coming down the pike in the future, but the key thing is uh, weeds will find a way or pests. Uh, again, diseases and insects, can't forget those. And that's what's great about Pest Week is we're coming into the front end of scouting for diseases and possibly in-season insects. And so that's important. Also maybe scouting to see if uh, the technologies in the case of, you know, uh, rootworm technologies, I know there are people that are interested in those. All these technologies, it's, it's really important to scout and review and make sure products are working and develop, and develop that multi-prong approach that uh, – Weeds and pests have less less ability to, to dodge what you're trying to achieve. Sustainability is really important for U.S. soy, and part of that to the farmer is profit, obviously. You know that that, and our ability to use less tillage and other uh, other practices to, you know, take care of the soil and water is important to our customer base. And if you can't control the weeds, it just makes everything a whole lot harder. And we know that, and that's why we're working in this space. At this, at the uh, United Soybean Board, the Soy Checkoff, you have uh, a number of partners with you on this project. That's exactly right. There is industry partners, the universities, again, as I noted, um, all of them working together. You know, the commodity groups, uh, there's other commodity groups involved in this, uh, although mostly this was started 
from uh, soybean because, you know, noticing the resistant weeds. But we're also working across a number of areas there. Uh, land grants, as I've said, agrochemical companies, you name it, we're, we're working with it because, you know, farmers also want to know that their dollars are being wisely spent and collaborative efforts usually is a great way to help spend that dollar more effectively. So, again, the website is IWillTakeAction.com? That's correct. So we encourage farmers to check it out. And, wow, there, there's so many challenges this year especially, uh, Tom, that, uh, you know, anything that can be done to help farmers get an advantage on fighting these uh, yield robbers, every bit helps. That's exactly right. This is one piece, and Pest Week is to help elevate that into the people's minds to get out there, scout, and uh, do the best they can to, you know, one, improve profitability and sustainability into the future. Well, I have to ask you, how do your crops look there in Iowa? Well, actually, I figured you probably would ask. In my part, <laughs> I'm in northwest Iowa. Um, we've had a decent season. It's one of those that, you know, you thought you were going to get a really great early start, and then we had a cold May that slowed things down. Um, did get our products on. I'm actually going to dribble a little more nitrogen out uh, for some trials here. But uh, crops are generally pretty decent, pretty even. Um, we didn't have quite the swamping rainfall yet that we've had in prior years. Uh, but uh, the weeds and the pests are just waiting. They're out there. I was going to ask you, what pests are emerging right now as, as you've scouted your fields? or What are you finding? Well, really, uh, I've been out looking to see if my herbicide's been working correctly, the, the pro, you know, getting stuff on. Water hemp is probably my number one hassle. Uh, my burn-down program, as I told you, it's uh, it's the mare's tail, horseweed. That's, you know, it's Roundup uh, pretty much resistant now, but uh, the, the burn-down worked fabulously, as that uh, accidental test, t- test trip showed me. And uh, those are a couple things. A lot of farmers now are just completing their well, I would say final application on their soybeans, and uh, most of the fertility programs are on. I see a few guys going with, uh, you know, various ways to apply a little nitrogen here or there maybe. But uh, as I look to the forward, I'll be looking for keys to diseases and uh, trying to not over-apply products, you know, trying to be efficient with what we need to do to get the yield without uh, spending too much money. So, that's what I'm looking at next. But in general, around here, crops are pretty decent. All right. So we encourage farmers to check out that website, IWillTakeAction.com, and get some good, helpful information and some tips to fight these uh, yield-robbing pests. Thanks a lot, Tom, for the update. Take care. Thanks for the chat. You bet. All right. Tom Oswald from Iowa, United Soybean Board Supply Action Team Chair. Up next, we'll talk markets with Arlen Suderman from INTL FC Stone. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And joined now by Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities, Commodities Economist with INTL FC Stone. Arlen, good to have you back on. Let's, uh, let's talk about China. We, we went through weeks and months of uh, you know constant 
debate and observation and questioning about uh, whether or not we'd get a trade deal. Now that we have one, it's, we're going through the same thing, only it's whether or not they're living up to the trade deal. And, of course, Peter Navarro kind of threw a, a kind of a, a bomb into the whole works uh, recently by saying the deal was off. And then, of course, the president and others came back and said, no, it's still on. So we've had we have all this uncertainty and everyone monitoring how much they're buying, where they're at. And uh, are they on pace? Are they fulfilling their commitments? How do you feel about where we're at with the phase one trade deal with China? Well, they're obviously behind schedule, and it's easy to blame that on coronavirus, but we really haven't gotten into the real test period. Uh, as we understand and read through the uh, phase one trade deal, it was the object was to remove barriers so that when we are competitive that they would buy from us. How that merges with the unpublished individual commodity-specific targets is still a little bit unclear. But the problem was after coronavirus and China started reopening again, we weren't competitive because our dollar was so strong relative to the BRL, and we simply could not compete on a dollars and cents standpoint. Whenever our dollar weakened and the BRL strengthened, we became competitive, and they bought from us. And when it reversed, then they quit buying from us again. Uh, but now Brazil's uh, soybean basis is certainly tightening up as supplies start to run tight. Uh, our dollar is weaker. Their BRL is stronger. And we've been seeing a significant uptick in purchases. The test to me still comes down to, do they buy significant quantities of corn, ethanol, and distiller's grains? We have not seen a lot of movement on that. We continue to hear chatter among our customers in China about that possibility. Uh, We heard the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's uh, office comment on that, uh, was it a week ago? Um, but we haven't seen any actual movement. We've we've heard rumors for two years now. Rumors don't really uh, pay the bills. So to me, that is the real key. And it comes down to, you know, what China thinks is in its best interest. And uh, so far, apparently, they haven't felt it was in their best interest to move forward. Yeah, the focus is always on soybeans. But to get anywhere near that 36.5 billion figure, they're going to have to buy more than just soybeans. Yeah, they really do. Uh, Robert Lighthizer, a U.S. trade representative, said in testimony here recently uh, that the current uh, purchase level is around $10 billion. The latest official data that we have is about 6.3 or $6.4 billion, but that only goes through April. So I assume Lighthizer has more current data. Um, so that still keeps it within reach. Uh, particularly with all the pork they're buying, if they were to buy their normal allotment of soybeans for shipment this fall, as well as adding some corn, some wheat, some ethanol and and distiller's grains, they could certainly push it above $30 billion in in any way. But will they do that is still an unknown and why the markets are so hesitant to trade it. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. Let's switch over to our production. Uh, um, how do you feel about where the crop progress is at, crop condition numbers uh, that are coming out each week? How do you feel about those as where it's taking us, uh, what pace we're on for our crop this year? Yeah, we're really looking at a growing season. That's I hate to say it, greenhouse conditions because it's not quite that, but above normal temperatures overall. In fact, June was quite warm for the Midwest, especially in the western part of the Midwest here in the Dakotas. Um, 
<clears throat> but other, but we've had moisture. Um, there have been times when we've dried out, but then timely rains have come through. Roughly 20% of the belt now is drier or, or drier than we'd like, encountering some stress. That's fairly normal in a typical year that there will be 20% of the belt somewhere that's too dry. Um, and there is some risk we could expand that to a third of the belt once again. But overall, we've got gulf moisture coming up. Uh, we've got moisture riding over the top of the high uh, from the Pacific. Um, we've got the channels open to bring moisture in. It's an unstable pattern right now that we're in, which tends to feed a lot of these pop-up thunderstorms. So some people get missed, some people get dumped on. If you get enough movement of that, then it, Everybody tends to get some rain. Um, and so overall, the crop conditions are holding up. Right now, my model would put the corn crop at uh, 179.3 bushels per acre, which is a little above USDA's trend yield of 178.5. And soybean yield would be at 50.6, which is a little above USDA's trend yield of 49.8. When I posted that on Twitter Monday afternoon, I thought I would get a firestorm of farmers criticizing me for uh, putting the high yields out there. And I had more of them say, I think you're too low. And wow. uh, that really took me back. You just don't hear that from farmers unless they're very comfortable with how their crop looks. I know there are some problem areas. Um, and if you look at the condition rings, you can really see that eastern Midwest uh, Kansas, Colorado specifically, and even some areas of North Dakota. Um, but overall, the nation's crop looks pretty good. Are ethanol plants starting to buy corn again? They are, and since they closed down and um, are now reopening, some of them just are short in coverage and needing to push the basis in order to get their needs filled. But we're also getting to that time of year that farmers are starting to get nervous with the good crop conditions out there, knowing that they're going to need to make room for the crop coming later this year. And so it's not taking much of a push in the basis in order to get their needs filled. So it's helping to hold the basis up right now, um, but it's not really dramatically strengthening it by any means. And uh, end users are pretty much saying, in, including ethanol plants, that there's a lot of farmer-owned corn out there that they know has got to move between now and harvest, and they're kind of going hand-to-mouth expecting that corn to, to move at some point. And typically, if we're going to get a weather premium in the market, we would anticipate that here over the next few weeks as the forecasts start to look into um, the pollination period. If, if it doesn't show any problems, then we're vulnerable to the downside. If problems do exist, and then the speculative funds have a lot of short positions to unwind. We know that sometimes, oftentimes, what farmers are focused on, what the media is focused on, may be different than what traders and the markets are focused on. What are the markets focused on right now? 3.3. That's $3.3 billion in carryout for the next marketing year. That's what the fund managers are looking at. So that means that really to sustain any type of significant rally, we need to take about $1.8 billion off of that and drop us closer to $1.5. So $1.8 billion can come out, but it would probably take a combination of some production problems and that Chinese business we were talking about earlier. Um, and one of the things to keep an eye on long term 
is that uh, China is still, even with African swine fever, is still consuming about 30 million metric tons uh, more corn every year than what they're producing. And so they're importing about 7 million metric tons a year, most of it from the Black Sea. So is Chinese government as a policy, they're going to have to deal with this at some point. So are they going to allow for inflated meat prices in order to avoid increasing import quotas for corn, or are they going to open the doors for much higher in imports of corn? And we don't have the answer to that, but that's something policymakers in China face. They're going to have to deal with at some point, probably over the coming year. You mentioned on-farm storage uh, needing on-farm, you know, stocks needing to move. Do we have much of a handle on how much is still on the farm, and or how much is moving? Well, USDA is forecasting ending stocks for the current marketing year on August 31, a little over 2 billion bushels. And the general sense is um, that the majority of that, probably 60%, 70% of that is probably still in the farmer's hands. Um, so that's a significant amount of corn that would fill a lot of needs between now and the harvest this year. All right. So we'll keep uh, a close watch on that. You know, as as we look at the markets overall, what impact is COVID-19 still having on, on the grain markets? Um, not a significant amount. Um, certainly we'll learn more here um, on June 30th as we get a feel for what impact it had on feed usage. Did it? You can make an argument that it increased feed usage. You can make an argument that it decreased feed usage um, between culling and changing rations. Um, but there's a lot of unknowns, and plus we had some lower quality corn e- anyway in, from the last harvest. And so we know from the March 31 stocks report that that resulted in increased consumption, both for ethanol and feed usage, just simply to get the gain that we wanted or the production that we wanted. So we'll get a lot of questions answered on June 30th. Um, but we're recovering in the livestock industry. We're getting slaughter back. We're still backed up in animals, which does tend to consume more um, uh, feed overall. Um, but most of the big impacts are really behind us right now from a feed standpoint. All right. It's going to be an interesting summer, that's for sure. Arlen, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for the update. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Mike. All right, Arlen Sitterman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTLFC Stone. Well, the deadline has passed for those commodities wanting to get into the CFAP program to make their case. One of those industries, one of those segments of the agriculture industry that's made its case is the potato industry. We'll get an update from Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. How confident or optimistic are they that they'll be included in CFAP? We'll find out next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, as USDA continues to implement the CFAP, Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, and money is being sent out to producers, there are still commodities wanting to get into the program one of those the potato industry and joining us now is the ceo of the national potato council cam quarles cam thanks for joining us joining us again you you have made your appeal to usda 
why you feel that the potatoes should be included. Uh, have you heard anything back yet? Not yet, Mike. Um, we're th- there's been a huge number of comments that have poured into USDA over the the past week or so, uh, trying to get commodities into the program. They've got to sift through all of those and validate them, and then make determinations. So, I, realistically, I, I think we're looking at at several weeks before they make mm-hmm. those adjustments. Uh, as we look back uh, a month ago, when this program first rolled out, Mike. Uh, a number of fruit and vegetable commodities, including potatoes, were not included in the most valuable category of payments. And USDA made that determination to leave those commodities off um, based on their assessment that they had not suffered a 5% or greater price decline during kind of the beginning of this coronavirus crisis. We, we, you know, we, went back and looked at what USDA had um, had reviewed, and we found that, and it's not their fault, but the only data that they had available to them was terminal market data. Well, that covers about 6.5% of the business of the potato industry on an annual basis. When we went back and looked comprehensively at all sides of our business, seed, potatoes for processing, potatoes at retail, we found that we'd actually actually suffered a greater than 20% price loss. And so we think that information is pretty compelling, and we, we believe USDA wants to do the right thing here. Um, there's, as you look at the overall numbers, only 2% of the CFAP money is going out to fruits and vegetables right now, even though they cover about half of all U.S. farm gate value. And so i I got to believe that Secretary Purdue and the other folks down at USDA knows there know that there is an issue there, and they're they're trying to correct it. Their public comments would indicate that that they they realize that uh, more should be in this, and it's just a matter when you have so many requests coming in, as you said, so many different uh, commodities wanting in. Uh, it kind of makes you wonder: is there how much is there going to be to accommodate all of them, or how many will be granted access into the program? Well, you, you know, you just hit on the multi-million dollar question. Um, the, the program is operating right now, and uh, about $4 billion has already gone out the door. Um, we're, we don't want to be in the position where USDA recognizes that um, errors were made, and potatoes rightfully should have been in the program, but by the time that those adjustments are made, there's no money left. Um, we know that they're strapped for resources. Congress is going to have to do more, but we're, we're really pushing and hopeful that these determinations are going to be made efficiently so that our growers can get uh, at, at least a portion of the relief that they need, recognizing there's probably going to have to be another big stimulus bill to, to cover all the need for agriculture. Re- really, Mike, the, the CFAP, the the reference period ends on April 15th. And that was just as the crisis was starting to take off. So I think everybody recognizes that this thing is going to take a lot of twists and turns through the balance of 2020 and resources need to be there uh, to to provide for all of those variables that we probably haven't even contemplated yet. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Cam, um, We've talked before about the impact of COVID-19 on the potato industry. As the country starts to reopen, we start seeing some signs of recovery. 
uh, people getting out more, eating out more. Are you seeing any rebound yet for the potato industry? We are. Uh, you, you're starting to see the in the in the data that um, there, there is a is clearly a pickup in food service. You know, f- food service essentially dropped almost to nothing uh, when the crisis first hit. That you can you can see very clearly as restaurants are starting to come back online um, that that there are there is a pickup in sales. Um, the 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 big wild card in all that, Mike, is how durable this reopening is going to be. We obviously want it to be a strong and growing reopening that's efficiently executed so that we can get back to some semblance of normal. What, what would be really challenging for, not just for agriculture, but I think for everybody, is if you have this kind of sawtooth type of, uh, type of graph where you open and then have to, have to shut down parts of the economy, that, that would that would get to be pretty chaotic and and really prolong the impact of the crisis. But r- right now, optimistically, we're um, we're we're hopeful we're not going to get to that, and and we're going to see some slow, steady um, growth over the next few months to get back to something that looks a little bit more like normal. Yeah, so many questions uh, as. We see the numbers on testing and positive cases and questions about the fall, about schools returning, you know, getting back in session. And it sounds like in some places that may be on a limited basis or an adjusted basis, maybe not full days, maybe not full classrooms, certainly, uh, which has an impact on that school lunch program, which really has a big impact on commodities. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's it's amazing how how large the institutional purchases are. Um, you, you mentioned school lunch. Uh, we, we look at uh, other other types of institutions. Um, that that all factors into that food service. You know, sixty percent of the potato industry is is food service facing. The federal nutrition programs huge huge part of that, um, uh, as well as hotels, tourism, lodging, uh, it all factors into that number. And um, we're, it, it really is a, is a wild card. I, I, have a, I have a daughter who's, heading to, who's in high school, and she's got to deal with those challenges, too. We, we want her back in school. Yep. Cam, thanks for the update, and uh, we'll talk again when you get word uh, on, on CFAP, okay? Thanks, Mike. Take care. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. With that, we wrap it up for today. Thanks for being with us. Stay safe, everyone. Join us again tomorrow right here on AOA.